I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the scripture passage that we'll consider this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 24. Or you can find that passage printed for us this morning in our bulletin as well. A reminder of where we are in the letter to the Ephesians. Last week, we considered how our deep unity and oneness that we have in Christ does not erase the rich diversity that we have in Christ. Though we are one body, we are many members of that one body with diverse gifts, all meant to be used for the well-being of one another, for the building up of the church of Christ. And we considered how God has given us his Son, the Son has given us the Spirit, and the Spirit has given us each other as gifts to and for one another in our life together. Until, as we work together, building each other up in love and good works, we reach that full maturity in Christ. And what is implicit behind that, what Paul is showing us here, is that Christ has begun a new humanity, a new redeemed people, renewed by his grace. A people no longer marked by the disease and death of sin by the first Adam, but now a new people marked by truth, justice, and righteousness according to the new man, the new head of a new humanity, which is Christ himself. And that new identity that we have in Jesus, that we inhabit, is the way in which we ought to walk in accordance to that reality and that identity, which is exactly what Paul leads us to in this passage, addressing how we ought to walk in light of what Christ has done for us. And so let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. And afterwards, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and I'll invite you in that sense, but in response to say, thanks be to God. So hear now God's word. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. May the Spirit add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning. So some of you perhaps started a new school year, the, the beginning of, of new classes with a new teacher. Maybe you're like my son, uh, you just started kindergarten, or maybe you just started college and you're embarking on that new journey. These are exciting times of change and growth in life. Uh, I remember how uh, kind of a custom in my household, my mother, at the beginning of each school year, before school started, before those first classes, she would take me and my brother to the store to buy a 
new set of clothes, a first day uh, set of clothes for us to don, uh, kind of as a fresh start, you know, a fresh start to something new, a new school year. And here in this text, Paul is telling us that the Holy Spirit has brought us into the school of Christ, as it were, and the Holy Spirit has given us a new set of clothes that marks the beginning of this new life that we have inherited in Jesus. You can see that in verses 22 and 24 of our text where Paul, he uses verbs, language that are used elsewhere to describe removing clothes, taking off clothes, and putting on clothes. He says we've put off the old clothing and we've put on this new clothing, but what he is describing here is far more significant than a new set of clothes that we put over our bodies at the beginning of a new year. The Holy Spirit has given us a completely new identity in Jesus, a new self in preparation for the start of the new creation and eternal life that we have in Jesus. And he wants us to walk in that reality of what God has done for us in Christ. We are to walk in the way of Christ, in that new clothing, our new identity. We should see our former way of life in Adam, apart from Christ. The old humanity, that old former way of life is like old clothing that no longer fit us anymore now that we are in Christ. The arrival of Christ's resurrection from the dead should cause us to look back at our old, old clothing and see it as basically outdated, out of style, no longer fitting to who we are in Jesus. There is a style of life that is fitting to King Jesus and the new creation, and we are to walk in it. That's what Paul is getting at here. As I was meditating on clothing here, I asked myself, why, why is it that fashion is always changing? What's in style and what's not in style? Why are things coming and going out of style? You know, one day it's tight, skinny jeans, the next day it's ripped jeans and baggy jeans, and these things come and go in style. I came to this thought that I think it's because we all want to be in on something new. We want to feel like we're part of something new, like we're progressing, we're moving forward. In fashion, it changes, and so we adjust to it, and we feel like, as we adjust to it, that we're improving, that we're part of something new. But let me break it to you, as I meditated on myself. These are just empty promises of the marketing world, right? that wants to convince us to buy more clothes, to spend more money on new types of fashion. They're empty. They do not give us real change. They do not give us a new identity. They do not improve us. By comparison, what we see today is what Jesus gives us is real change to the power of his death and resurrection. He has made us part of something new and eternal. And by his spirit, he is improving us. These are not empty promises. These are full promises that we have in Christ. Full promises that are secured by the empty tomb of Jesus, his resurrection from the dead. And so they are yes and amen in him. And so with that confidence before us of God's word and God's promises, let's consider the reality here that we see in this text of what Paul is laying out. We'll have three points. First, the old, the old way that we inherited from our first father, Adam, Secondly, the new way of Christ. And then lastly, 
which, to which do you belong? And it'll mainly be an illustration uh, drawing out the implications of it for us. And so first, this old way of Adam, the first man. We see this in verses 17 through 19, where Paul, he insists that Christians no longer live in the old way that they once belonged to. This is what you once belonged to. This is what you once lived in. And it's fascinating that here, as he's writing to the Ephesians, he tells them, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Why is that interesting? Who were these Ephesians? They were Gentiles by birth, right? By natural birth, these were non-Jews of the nations. They were Gentiles by birth. But here, Paul sees them no longer as Gentiles. They've been separated, set apart from that former identity, and now consecrated to God. He no longer sees them as marked and defined and bound by that former identity as Gentiles, separated from God and apart from Christ, apart from hope in the world. No, he sees us as now marked by Christ, this new identity that we have as recreated children of God in Christ Jesus. And so, as we consider this description that he lays out for us in 17 through 19, as he's describing the old self, the old way, well, we should consider that this does not define us as Christians. This is not a description of us as Christians. At a fundamental level, this is not who we are in Christ now. Therefore, these old ways that we once walked in and lived in should diminish and weaken over time the more we walk with Jesus. The fact that Paul has to address this, however, the the fact that he has to call us to this and remind us of this is evidence that we still struggle with sin, that we still have evil desires, that we still have to put off continually our old self and put on our new self that Christ has given us. And so it's still an ongoing battle, this struggle with sin that we are to strive in and walk in more and more. And so... With that said, let's consider this old way that we once belonged to and still in some ways struggle with. Well, here Paul, he's giving us in these verses the insider scoop on humanity. What is the natural person apart from Christ? We see his description of us as, as humans, as hard, stubborn hearts inside, seared consciences, with repeated actions of sin and disobedience, no longer are sensible to guilt and shame. Also, this willful suppression of the truth, darkened mindsets that refuse to submit to God's will, all in order to chase after the wind, futility, desires, and promises that are empty and never fulfilling. And all of this, it stems from our fallen and corrupt nature that we inherited by our first father, Adam, who willfully rebelled against God in the beginning. And because of that original sin, we are all born into this world as rebels against God, with enmity against him. And the desire of the natural man's heart is set against God and his ways and his truth. Because people do not naturally want to submit to God, they become darkened in their thinking. And verse 18 says that the ignorance and the darkness in their understanding, the futility in their thinking, it all stems back to this, the hardening of their hearts. The problem 
is in the human heart and its desires. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament in chapter 17 verse 9 describes the heart in this way. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Paul says something similar in verse 22 where he says the heart is corrupted by deceitful desires. We have deceitful desires raging in our hearts by birth. It's because of man's rebellious heart that we desire things apart from God and that people intentionally and willfully suppress the truth that they know deep down. The, the Creator exists and that He deserves our praise. In fact, we find a very similar and parallel passage in Romans uh, 1, verse 18 through 21, where he says that people, all people, suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what they what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so what we learn from this, loved ones, is that the reason unbelievers in the world, those who are not believing in Christ, the reason for their unbelief has nothing to do with the lack of arguments. It's not for a lack of intellectual credibility to the Christian faith. Rather, it is for a lack of godly desire to hear those arguments for the truth that results in unbelief. I'm sure you've probably experienced this yourself, that as you're trying to convince people about God and speak to them about the truths of the Bible, that they throw up all kinds of excuses and justifications, stiff-arming you, right, with all different kinds of responses to the truth that you're presenting. Why do they do that? Why do they so refuse the truth? Well, according to the Bible, what Paul is describing here, they do this in order to maintain their lives the way they're living them to maintain their autonomy, to live as a law unto themselves instead of bowing before God and his law. As one author says it this way, he says, the disobedient will eventually search out arguments by how we live their lives. In short, the disobedient will eventually search out arguments that will justify them in their disobedience. So they pursue disobedience. They desire all different kinds of rebellious ways against God and then seek to justify that over and over again, throwing up different excuses and justifications of how they're living. In J.R. Tolkien's books, The Lord of the Rings, there is a creature, a despicable and sad creature named Golan, who long ago discovered the infamous ring of power. And he eventually, over time, came to call that ring precious my precious, right? And he protected that ring at all costs. And eventually, he ended up burrowing himself deep under the, the mountains, in the caves, in the darkness, hiding away from everyone else, keeping his precious safe and secure with him. And he became corrupted in his nature and, and despicable even in his appearance. It destroyed him, and it cut him off from the world around him. Well, that is what humanity has become with sin. 
corrupted and darkened and ultimately destroyed by the sin that we find too precious to give up. Too precious. We cling to it. We want it for ourselves. And like Golem, who was set on that precious ring and hostile to anyone who threatened to take it away from him, people are set on their sins and hostile towards all who threaten to take that sin away from them. This is the description that Paul gives us of the old way that we were all born into. So how is it if the heart is so deceitfully wicked, desiring these things, so set against God and his ways, how is it that some of us came to believe in the truth? Well, it's by the Holy Spirit. As we saw earlier in Ezekiel 36, God had promised that he would send his Spirit to give us a new heart, to take out that heart of stone and put in its place a heart of flesh that is sensible to God's ways and his love and his truth, giving us a new birth and donning for us a new identity in Christ by union with him. And so that's what we'll see next in the second point, the new way of Christ, this new man, this new identity that we have in him. And Paul says that believers, we've come to learn Christ. We've learned Christ. And how so? Well, he says that we've heard about him. And by implication, we heard about him from others. You might remember the very first person who shared the gospel with you. Maybe it was your mother or your father in your home. Or maybe it was at college and someone shared the gospel with you. Or at a coffee shop or wherever it might be. Someone shared the gospel with you according to God's plan. And the Spirit used that truth to make you new in him. Whether in that moment or later down the road, you replace that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that's sensible to his truth and love. And in that way, not only by humans, but by the Spirit himself, we were taught in Jesus the truth which is in him. That's what Paul says here. The truth is in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means that when we come to believe Jesus, we have a paradigm shift. We begin to see the world entirely differently with Christ at the center of the universe. Not spatially, as if he exists in some spatial place in the center of the universe, but effectively at the center of the universe. He is the source and subject and sustainer of all physical and spiritual existence, all knowable and inscrutable truths. There is no beginning, therefore, or end to any search for truth apart from him who is the Alpha and the Omega. All truth revolves around and centers upon Christ. And the Spirit has revealed this truth to us in our hearts by his grace. This is the truth the Spirit has shown us, our truth, the real truth. That has not only awakened our understanding and our thinking, but also has quickened our hearts desiring so that we desire what is good, beautiful, and true according to God's word. And we see in verse 24 of our passage that Paul says that by learning Christ in our heart, we have been created in God. This is new creation language. We have been remade, recreated in Jesus. And he's done that. His Holy Spirit has done that as he united us to Jesus by faith. And when he united us to him by faith, all that Jesus had is now ours, and all that was ours was accredited to him, such that his vindication, his declaration as righteous from his, with his resurrection from the dead, and his new glorified nature is now given to us freely by grace alone. Whereas our condemnation 
that we deserve and our old sinful nature was given to him on the cross where he died in our place long before you ever believed christ did that for you and so with this new standing as justified before god and new nature that we inherit in christ by faith we have renewed mindsets that are now focused on christ and see things through him and his reality and we have been restored into the likeness of God. The image of God has been restored and renewed in us in truth and righteousness and holiness. And this is the way of life, the way of truth, the way of Christ that we are to walk in. The new reality, the new identity that we have inherited by faith, that we have donned in Christ. And so that leads us to our third and final point this morning. Which way do you find yourself in? Or in other words, to whom do you belong? The first Adam or the second Adam, Christ? What are you wearing? This reminds me of a story, an old story, called The Emperor's New Clothes. And not the Disney movie, but rather the old story by Hans Christian Andersen. And it's this fascinating and humorous story in which a vain conceited emperor spends all of his time not with his men not with his counselors not with his army but in his dressing room putting on new clothes fine clothes he loved fine clothing and dressing up in that way and then two swindlers come to town dressed in the finest clothes he's ever seen and he's interested these are kind of trendsetters they're influencers in that story and so the emperor he decides that he wants to pay them a load of money so that they will make him the finest clothes that they can come up with. But what happens is that all of that money just goes straight into their pockets. And the swindlers, they set up their looms and pretend to weave new clothes with invisible threads, burning candles through the night, working with empty looms. And they convince everybody in the town that only those of noble birth, only the worthy ones, are able to see the beauty and elegance of these new clothes. And if you can't see them, then, well, that must mean you're not noble, you're not worthy. And then eventually, we see that they present the clothes to the emperor, and he thinks to himself, the story says, what's this? I can't see anything. This is terrible. Am I a fool? Am I unfit to be the emperor? What a thing to happen to me, of all people. Then he says aloud to everyone else so they could hear, Oh, it's very pretty. It has my highest approval. Even though he couldn't see anything. It was invisible to him. And then they convinced the emperor to take off his clothes that he was wearing, to put on invisible clothes, before they lead him out in a public procession, a parade throughout the whole town, right? Wearing invisible clothing. Just imagine that. It's one of our nightmares, right? And at first, all the fools, uh, they're, uh, all the, uh, sorry, the adults, they're fooled too, thinking the same thing of the king, the emperor. Ah, we just must not be noble enough to see his clothes, because we can't see them. But then a little child speaks up and says, but he hasn't anything on. The emperor has no clothes. And eventually that rumor spreads until the whole town cries out, the emperor has no clothes. And the emperor, 
He suspected that they were all right, but at that point it was way too late. The procession must go on, and so he walks, it says, proudly, more proudly than ever, as his nobleman held high the train of his robe that wasn't there at all. What does this story tell us in relation to what we've been seeing this morning? This, friends, loved ones, don't be fooled by the swindlers of sin, by the devil. If you try and cover yourself up by your own good works, your own obedience according to the law of God, or your own excuses and ways of justifying yourself before men and before God, you will be like that emperor with no clothes. And on that last day, when Christ returns, that day of judgment, we will be led in public procession to the throne of God in his judgment seat. And if you find yourself there alone, apart from Christ, you will be found naked and ashamed. Vulnerable, with no clothes. Remember that Jesus, the very Son of God, when he came to this world, he was stripped, basically naked, and arraigned with all of our shame, clothed in all of our sin and guilt upon the cross that he willingly took for himself in order to give us the clothes of his righteousness, the robes of his holiness, his obedience, his perfection that he clothes us with now by faith in him. And so if you are not in Christ by faith, you have nothing on. And on your own, you are naked and vulnerable for, before your maker and before your judge. And so today, if you have personally not yet believed in Jesus, I urge you to believe in him, trust in him, and he will give you his very robes of righteousness. He will wash you clean from all your sins. Don't be found naked and apart from him. Be found clothed in him. And you Christians who have been found in him, who have believed in him, this is the reality, the new identity that Christ has given you. So now walk in that reality. Continue to put off that old way of life. Let it diminish and weaken. Shed that old nature. And live more and more in the reality of what Christ has done for you by his spirit. Walk in newness of life with Christ at the center of our way of thinking and seeing all things, desiring God and his kingdom and his righteousness above all else. This is what God has done for us. Let us walk in that reality. May it be so. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word, which always convicts and challenges, but also comforts us and consecrates us in holy living to you. Lord, we ask that by the power of your word, working through the administration of your Holy Spirit, that you would apply these truths in our hearts, that you would impress them therein, and that they would affect change and renewal in each of us. And if there are some here today that have not yet personally believed on Christ and made that public profession to be clothed in his righteousness, and to stand in him secure, then give them that faith, grant them that repentance and faith in Jesus as you have done for us. By your grace, we beg and ask that you do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, loved ones, let's